The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And welcome back for week five of our course on karma. And uh, you might be a little confused because it said karma and something like dependent origination or codependent arising. There are different ways that that well-known teaching of the Buddha gets translated. And uh, the idea is this fall course, we look at karma from a more simple, straightforward, mundane point of view. And then from a, a more subtle, refined point of view, karma is really the teaching on dependent arising. And that we'll cover in the winter Buddhist studies class. And the two topics are quite linked. And you'll see that as we continue. And um, really, these two courses are kind of like the spine of the, of the Buddhist teachings. To really understand, in the fall, we're really getting and training the mind to keep getting, like moment by moment, getting the conditional nature like this moment is unfolding in a lawful, conditional way. And as the moment, internal, external conditions unfold, the mind is relating to that conditional unfolding. And it matters how the mind's relating. And so in a funny way, you know, this age-old question about free will, (coughs) are we just screwed? Is there a way to participate that matters? And it's really in this place of looking at the lawful, conditional unfolding of the mind, of the body, of internal and external conditions, observing it, and realizing that part of that conditional unfolding is how the mind is relating. And that's how we shape not just the present, but also the future. That's how we participate, not only in the present, but the future, by how we're, rep- how we're relating right now, how the mind is relating right now to what's showing up out of the past. The present moment shows up out of the past, and then there's a present moment input to what's showing up out of the past. And that's how the mind is knowing what's showing up out of the past. It's not just something showing up out of the past, but there's a mind knowing it. And now we all know, because we've been told to some degree, we know that it matters how the mind is aware or how the mind is relating to what's showing up right now. And so we can pay attention to like how it matters. Oh, when I relate in this way, this seems to be set in motion. The present moment is affected in this way, and this seems to be set in motion right in the future, for the future. And I've been saying all, all along that it's, you know, karma can really uh, push our buttons. Like this phrase I gave everyone the first week, one of the five remem- remembrances I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, 
born out of my karma, related to my karma. Remember, karma is our intentional actions. Abide, supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. And then we reflect like all the karma, all the moments of judgment, all the moments of closing down, all the moments of reaction, all the moments of lust and greed. And it can seem, appropriately I think, that we're dragging behind a lot of stuff, a lot of causes and conditions. We've been you know, unskillful. And it can seem like our practice is to work out all that past karma. Whatever those past impressions that have been laid down for having been greedy or having been impatient or having been irritable or I got to let it all unwind. And so awakening becomes the equivalent of letting everything unwind and then we're done. But that's not what the Buddha teaches. I mean, he, he would say something, he says something in the teachings like there's no end or the, it's un, unimaginable how much, un, how many impressions are there needing to work themselves out. Right? Which is good because I don't have to work it all out. You know, there isn't anybody who has to work it all out. So that's sort of a provocative so then what is the work we're doing? So initially, like a lot of what we're talking about in this course, it was we're just learning to participate in a more honest way with conditionality, with cause and effect. So we're giving up the idea, we're practicing giving up the idea that it doesn't matter or that I'm just being screwed over, you know, I'm helpless to what happens, or there's no way to figure out how to participate skillfully in what's happening, so we're, we're helpless in that way, somebody's out to get me, I mean all these different sort of ideas are, that we have around fate or destiny or, you know, from time to time that are just not pragmatic or helpful to us, and, and we're coming up with a new one, which is it always matters. It never doesn't matter how we're relating. And the benefits of relating skillfully are immediate and down the road. Right? I could be relating right now to this moment with a lot of impatience. God, I can't wait to get home tonight. And that would immediately affect my experience for the rest of the class. And it will probably carve that habit in more deeply so that becomes more the habit of the mind to be impatient, to be judgmental, to be, you know, whatever, whatever that experience is, to be hateful of my experience. So the, the real resolution of all the karmic impressions, because, you know, and again, this is, the Buddha also said it's incomprehensible. We can't really understand the roots, the depth of karma, so we shouldn't try. 
So the, the resolution isn't somehow to let work it all out. The resolution is to understand what karma is. So the first step is to learn how to, participa- to, to participate more honestly, more skillfully with cause and effect. And then that creates a little space in our lives. Right? We're no longer that helpless person. We're no longer railing against fate. We're just doing what's pragmatic to do, which is, okay, Mark, what's a skillful way of relating to what's showing up in the mind and body and in my circumstances right now? That's the only relevant question. Okay, this is showing up. Out of the past, this moment arises. How best to relate to this? So we really ground... We, you know, it's almost like we're looking at the only thing that's relevant to look at. This present moment has just shown up. Where did it show up from? Well, we just say it shows up because life seems to be pretty lawful. So it's showing up out of the past because of everything that was in motion. This moment shows up. And how am I going to relate? And we could relate as if it doesn't matter and then see how that works. Or we could relate that it does matter and see what happens. Once we have the presumption that matters, we start paying more attention to the present moment and tracking continuity, present moment awareness, to learn, okay, presuming that it matters, then is how I'm relating right now helping or not helping? And then all of the sort of moral rules that, you know, in any spiritual system, religious system that we get, they're really born out of human beings paying attention and then articulating as best they can, imperfectly or wisely, depending on the particular articulation, the person that articulate these sort of moral precepts like we have in Buddhism. I undertake the training to refrain from harm, harming others, right? harming myself and harming others. I undertake the training to refrain from taking things that haven't been given. Like these rules, these precepts are distillations of humans paying attention, okay? I'm relating to the present moment. Here's what I'm doing. This is how I'm relating. And this is what gets set in motion. Oh, Stealing doesn't seem to be worth it. You know, when you really look at what gets set in motion, when I take what hasn't been given to me, it doesn't seem like the payoff helps, is worth it. So, having seen that hundreds of thousands of times, you know, a wise person has this conviction. I'm going to undertake the training not to take what hasn't been given to me. I'm going to undertake the training to pay very close attention to my sexual activity so that I don't cause harm because it's that place in my life and that place in other people's lives where it just seems like a lot of suffering is set in motion. I'm going to undertake the training to refrain from speaking unwisely, speaking in ways that cause harm because this is another place you know, sexual activity, possessions, that's a second precept around possessions and stealing. 
Sexual activity is the third precept. Speech is the fourth precept. And different ways we intoxicate the mind to interrupt clarity of mind through alcohol and drugs or whatever intoxicants you might be you know, taking on. So it's really, the fir- there's the first precept to undertake the training to refrain from harming. And the next four are just, yeah, so given that you're t- undertaking the training to refrain from harming, you really want to look at how you're relating to objects, possessions, right? And you really want to look at how you relate to sexual activity. And you really want to relate or look, take a close look at how you relate to speech and how you relate to intoxicants. Because these are the areas where we cause, we have the potential to cause a lot of harm. And we're not trying to be good, we're trying to be free from suffering. And part of being free from suffering is realizing you can't really be free from suffering and be causing other people suffering. right? Because if I'm causing other people suffering, it's leaving an impression on my heart. And even if like you're causing other people suffering but you don't know it, that disconnection that allows you to not know you're causing harm to others is also stressful. Just because we don't know that we're setting emotion suffering doesn't mean we're not setting emotion suffering. You know, most of the time when we and other people are acting in ways that set emotion suffering, on the surface level of our mind, we don't think we're setting emotion suffering. I mean, if we did, we'd probably make different choices. So when we're setting emotion suffering, the biggest impediment is ignorance. We're unaware of what's happening. It's the unawareness, right? That's what the Buddha says. It's the not seeing suffering that is the cause of suffering. Right? That's a paraphrase of one of the most relevant statements from the Buddhist teachings. It's that we're not understanding, we're not seeing the very nature of how suffering moves in our heart and mind that is the cause for setting emotion suffering. And so the other, the sort of flip side of that is when we see clearly how suffering is set in motion, then it can be, the causes for suffering can be abandoned. We have to see it. And that's why we, that's why we study karma, right? Because it's really, that's what allows us to see the causes for suffering. I meant to read um, last couple weeks when we were talking about Hiri Otapa, this birth of our conscience, right? Sort of how the past, all our mistakes from the past lives on in the present moment as a, as a wholesome regret and concern, like regret for mistakes made, actions that had led to suffering, our own and other suffering, and concern that we might do it again. Right? So the regret and the concern, it lives on. 
And initially, from a self point of view, it feels burdensome to have that regret and that concern. But it's better than operating in the moment unaware. Right? So it's better to have that, to, I mentioned almost in a joking way, like to build monuments to our mistakes or to be the walking wounded. So the mistakes we've made, the way, the different ways we are and have been complicit in suffering, our own and other suffering, we want to keep it on the surface. It's, it's a real... Uh, initially, it doesn't feel right. We we're kind of going through a phase culturally now as for who knows what how many different reasons you know the the reality of racial injustice and the reality of sexism is a little bit more on the surface in our culture the last i don't know 10 years 55 years just more in the news um, more in the conversation and so we have this opportunity as you know beings awake beings in moments at least, to some degree at least, right? To instead of feeling like it's a problem that we have been programmed by culture to have, you know, conditioned reactions to gender, sexual orientation, race, class, you know, all these different aspects of difference, right? We have all this cultural baggage, but it's sort of much more useful to have it on the surface, all that fear, all that programming, all those prejudices, to kind of have it all on the surface because there, they, then that conditioning can be transformed into sort of monuments of like, oh, honey, be careful. Right, that wholesome regret, that wholesome concern. Feel into this so that you don't act it out with ignorance, with being unaware. It's not easy, like when we're around somebody that our mind has been conditioned through culture to be afraid of, or to sort of throw out of our heart. Whatever it means, reason, you know, it could be the way a person looks. You know, we do this even around attractiveness. People, not, not even sexually attracted, but just like whether somebody in our mind is sort of an attractive person, well then, yeah, I'll include you. Or if someone's an unattractive, per, unattractive person, oh no, sorry, I can't include you. Or whether they look like, you know, they're from, you know, uneducated. Or whatever it might be, a different class. So to to have that on the surface, right? Then it, then it can like, oh, oh, do I, do I, I, I can't make that conditioning go away, but I can relate to it in this way or I can relate to it in this way. But I can relate to it as if it's true and act it out because it's easy. I mean, this is the thing about these outflows you know, as they're called, the Asawas is the Pali word. This is from a great book, um, Ajahn Sushito, a 
British monk wrote a book called The Dawn of the Dhamma. Let's see if I can find it. And it's his book on the um, the Buddha's first Dharma talk on setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, where he talks about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And um, so this particular chapter, he's talking about these asawas, the outflows of the mind. Right. So these outflows are just a more buddhist way of talking about our cultural conditioning, about our the legacy of our culture or the inheritance of being born into a body, into culture, culture that's dominated by greed, anger, and delusion. So this is what he says. The Buddha described his own experience of full, fully awakening in a particular way. It wasn't just a momentary flash, but a thorough review of the way the mind works. And with each realization, the Buddha later commented, but I allowed no pleasant feeling that arose in me to gain power over my mind. The night under the Bodhi tree culminated in the realizations of the Four Noble Truths, as well as the insights into the origin and cessation and path leading to the cessation of the asawas. Asawa, which I have previously translated as unknowing in action, literally means outflow. The implication of the word suggests that, like a leak in a dam, it has the nature of creating further and more damaging outflows. Right, So when we see the outflows, the easiest thing in the world is just to go with the flow. You know, just to gossip. Because that's easy for us. Or just to take what I want. Because it's easy for us. Or just to, like when, the, when that movement of anger or irritation arises, just to sort of let it flow out as words. That's the easy thing. The hard thing is to, oh, honey, be careful, right? To refrain from doing it. So he goes on, he writes, the implication of the word suggests that, like a leak in a dam, it has the nature of creating further and more damaging outflows. Scholars, scholars' minds have strained to find a suitable equivalent in English to fully convey its meaning. The archaic cankers doesn't mean very much nowadays, and the relatively inactive-sounding taints is quite common. So that's how that word asawa has gotten translated. And he writes, perhaps with further explanation, outflows will be the most useful term. In this context, the Buddha describes three outflows, three ways in which the mind rushes out in avalanche mode. These may be listed as the outflow of sensuality or belief in the sensory description of reality, the outflow of becoming and the outflow of ignorance. So like the outflow of sensuality, like an avalanche, that's believing the sensual description. So that means believing the if only. If only I have that nice experience, then I'll be happy. If only I get rid of this unpleasant experience, then I'll be happy. So that's what that means to believe the, 
the sensual description that our mind is repeating to itself. It's the sort of orienting around our likes and dislikes of sensual experience. Now remember, sensual experience also involves our thoughts, or at least most of our thoughts, because you know, the great majority of our thoughts are about sensual experiences, right? So that's also in that whole mode of following likes and dislikes. The mind rushes into those modes of perceptual activity the way water heads toward the sea down a gradient. Although there is volition, no conscious, this is important, no conscious effort is necessary. Right? That's why that word outflow is a nice translation for that, the Pali word asawa, because this is the thing, it seems so personal, these outflows, but it's just that neurological groove you know it's like because that's the way the mind has worked in the past it's easy to act on our sensual description of the word or the second outflow is becoming like wanting to become somebody and the third outflow is to be identified with view self-view or any view any fixed view getting established in a view, fixing on a view, holding to views, opinions, right? So these are like easy for our mind, aren't they? To kind of run with our likes and dislikes, to run with becoming. I get so energized when I'm on a becoming becoming trip. I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll fix my life. I'll be, You know, it's just like there's energy there. Or even if I'm on, like, I'm going to go home, I'm going to make popcorn, I'm on a sensual trip, it's like there's energy there. Fixed views, self-righteous. You know, we we feel alive with these outflows. There's a kind of natural gradient that sort of leads onward. And so initially, in understanding karma, skillful and unskillful, we have to go against the stream. And that's a, as some of you know, that there's kind of a tradition here in the West of Dharma centers in this tradition, in the wider tradition of insight meditation and Theravada Buddhism called against the stream. They actually use that phrase for the you know, centers around the country against the stream because we're going against these three outflows. So again, outflow of sensuality or belief in the sensory description of reality, the outflow of becoming, and the outflow of ignorance, fixed views, self-view. The mind rushes into those modes of perceptual activity the way water heads towards the sea down a gradient. Although there is no, although there is volition, no conscious effort is necessary because of this. By and large, the outflows go unnoticed. Those who have no interest in awakening will generally find themselves not questioning the veracity of the responses and perceptions that their sense faculties make with objects. Such is the power of the sensory outflow. Right? We don't question it until suffering 
gets really strong. And even then we don't question it. Then if we're fortunate, like normally when there's a lot of suffering, we just scream and complain. But if we're fortunate and there's a lot of suffering, the mind goes, does anybody know what to do with all the suffering? And we look around and we listen, like with more humility. Who knows something about this experience of human suffering? Who seems to know something? What might I check out? You know, and then if we're lucky, we bump into some wise teachings, like the Buddhist teachings, and we have the wherewithal to check them out. So this, these are some <clears throat> um, verses from the Dhammapada, this collection of verses, and this is Gelfranstal's translation of the Dhammapada. Where in this world does one find someone restrained by conscience who knows little of blame, right? who's been able to avoid blame, as a good horse knows little of the whip? Like a good horse alert to the whip, be ardent and alarmed with faith, virtue, and effort, concentration and discernment, accomplished in the knowledge and, and good conduct, mindful, you will leave this great suffering behind. Irrigators guide water, fletchers shape arrows, carpenters fashion wood, the well-practiced tame themselves. So it's sort of interesting. This image of a horse is something that was used like uh, an ignorant human and an ignorant horse, like they end up getting beaten, right? Because they don't get the sort of more subtle instructions from nature. So the charioteer or the person driving the wagon is sort of just the force of nature. And the question is, are we going to align with nature or are we going to resist it? Because, and this is for us to check out, you don't have, it's not going to help to believe this, but let's just presume that what the Buddha has checked out and saying is true, it turns out to be true for us too, that living a, lo- uh, living a life where we justify harming, that that leads to the mind, body, heart getting really tight, suffering, right? So, like, are we going to move through life really alert, really sensitive to how we might be complicit in harming? Or are we going to move through life oblivious as if it doesn't matter? You know, so that we don't pay attention to our words, we don't pay close attention to our sexual activity or to what we take, how we earn our livelihood, how we you know, participate in our culture. We don't, we're not curious about causing harm. So if we're a good horse, it's like we pick up on subtle things, like how subtly we're complicit in causing harm. See, normally, this is why it's against the stream. That seems burdensome. You know, like when we go shopping, it seems burdensome to have to be concerned, like, are the people making these products being treated fairly? Or is there a better 
place to buy them. Or whatever, however we participate in the world, where we live, you know, how we vote, all these things. Are we allowing the mind, the heart, to be sensitive to harm, to causes of harm? Or are we pretending that it doesn't matter? And so what this image means is like, well, then nature, life, will have to deliver a more potent wake-up call. You know, if we're not going to take the subtle messages, then we may seem like we're going along fine, but eventually the message will get stronger. Basically saying, wake up, it really matters how you're relating. And this is, uh, I I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but one of my early teachers, he wasn't a Buddhist teacher, Swami Satchitananda was his name, he's an Indian man, and uh, but he used to say quite, you know, regularly to people, you know, I I lived <coughs> at at the ashram for a number of years in the eighties, in different places, and uh, you know, we three sits a day, and people practice celibacy and a lot of hatha yoga and service, and uh, like for a couple years, you know. I worked my butt off and I got, I think it was, you know, you got your room and board and if you got sick, they'd, you know, pay for your medical bills and then you get $25 a month for spending cash. I mean, it was like, it was pretty extreme. And uh, and he said, yeah, but if you don't, you know, if you don't like that, go back into the world, you know, and see if that's better. So don't, you know, don't presume that this is the way. Check it out. So, but don't just go back in the world and be oblivious. Go back in the world, do whatever you want to do, but pay attention to see if it's making you happy. You know, follow your greed, anger, and delusion, basically, and see where it leads. Or cultivate or find wholesome or situations that allow you to pay attention to what's, you know, how you relate. And are supportive of relating with non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion. Let's see what that sets in motion. And then here's another passage from that same collection, the Dhammapada. I forget if I've read this uh, already in this course. I don't think so. Easy is life for someone without conscience, bold as a crow, obtrusive, deceitful, reckless, and corrupt. Right? Life is easy for those people. Difficult is life for someone with conscience, always searching for what is pure or what is skillful, discerning, sincere, cautious, and clean living. One digs up one's own root here in this very world, if one kills, lies, steals, goes to another's spouse, or gives oneself up to drink and intoxicants. Good person, know this. Unskillful traits are reckless. Don't let greed and wrongdoing oppress you with long-term suffering. Seems like good advice. 
So I'll send this discourse out. Um, maybe I'll just mention it now. There are a number of things I'd like to send out to everybody, but they need to be scanned. So if there's somebody who is skilled at scanning things and kind of ordering them so they're easy to read, that would be great. You can see me right after class. It shouldn't take too long if, if you know what you're doing, but we don't have the right equipment to do it right here at the center. So this is from the Middle Link Discourses. The, it's called The Unwholesome and the Wholesome. Akusala and Kusala. When a noble practitioner understands the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, in that way they are one of right view, wise view you could say, whose view is straight, who has perfect confidence and the way things are, and has arrived at the true understanding, deep understanding. And what is wholesome? Killing, what is unwholesome? Killing living beings is unwholesome. Taking what is not given is unwholesome. Misconduct and sensual pleasures is unwholesome. False speech is unwholesome. Malicious speech is unwholesome. Harsh speech is unwholesome. Gossip is unwholesome. Covetous, covetousness is unwholesome. Ill will is unwholesome. Wrong view is unwholesome. And what is the root of unwholesome? Greed, hate, and delusion. And what is wholesome? Abstaining from killing living beings is wholesome. Abstaining from taking what is not given is wholesome. Abstaining from misconduct and sensual pleasures is wholesome. Abstaining from false speech, abstaining from malicious speech, abstaining from harsh speech, abstaining from gossip is wholesome. Uncovetousness is wholesome. Non-ill will, kindness, compassion is wholesome. Wise view is wholesome. And what is the root of wholesome? Non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion. When a wise disciple, wise practitioner has thus understood the unwholesome and the root of unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of wholesome, they entirely abandon the underlying tendency to lust. They abolish the underlying tendency to aversion. They extirpate the underlying tendency to the view and conceit I am or self-view. And by abandoning ignorance and arousing wise knowledge, one here and now makes an end of suffering. So this is just <clears throat> the longer version of the precepts, right? Where the um, the Buddha names the, the you know five precepts, but speech, the fourth precept, has four, you know, false speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, gossip, and uh, Instead of the non-use of intoxicants, the Buddha has these three aspects of attitude, covetousness, ill will, and wrong view. <clears throat> so this is like a nice way to do moral inventory. And it's not like, don't make it a should, but, and I'll send this out like I mentioned, but when you review it, the wholesome and the unwholesome, what's wholesome and unwholesome, just see... It, the nice thing about just reviewing the list, just see what comes to mind. 
what aspects of your life come to mind. And then when it comes to mind, then notice the hiri otapa. Notice what your conscious, uh, what your the conscious conscience does with that. Like ooh, you know that feeling. Ooh, ooh, maybe maybe I should avoid that. Maybe I should relate differently. Maybe I should refrain. Oh no no, I don't need to worry about that. That that tastes that feels fine. Whatever I'm doing in that place in my life. Right, no moral regret, no concern. Right, you feel clean. I mean, can't we bring to mind? Hopefully, can't we all right now bring to mind some places in our life, some relationships in our life that, when we bring them to mind, feel relatively clean? It doesn't mean it actually is clean. It just means. To the, to the degree our mind is sensitive, we don't sense any moral regret, any moral concern. But we want to keep you know, developing the sensitivity because there might be something subtle. I'll just give you an example. Like at this place where I uh, lived for a number of years, Swami Satchidananda's organization, both in Virginia and then in Manhattan at the Integral Yoga Institute that they ran in the West Village and in San Francisco. Um, and they had this way, you know, communicating with the different centers. And uh, they had this way back then, you know, this is way before cell phones, um, because long-distance calls were relatively expensive. They just didn't want to call the center if they needed to talk to somebody they wanted to know if the person was available. So what they would do, their their way of doing that was they would do a collect call. Now, some of you who are younger don't even know what collect calls are. But you get an operator on the line. You probably don't even know what an operator is. <laughs> there used to be operators. You know, you get the operator and say, I'd like to make a collect call. And you tell the person, you know, you want to call. And they dial the number. And if the person wasn't there, you know, the person at the other end picks up and the operator says, oh, I've got a collect call for so-and-so. And if the so-and-so isn't there, the person on the other line says, oh, so-and-so's not here. And the operator says, okay. And they hang up and you don't get charged. But the way they would do this, this is like a you know religious, spiritual organization. They're really into all the right things. Is they would have a coded name. You know, somebody that doesn't wasn't at the other center that way they would know, okay, they need to talk to that person, and then they would call direct, which is a lot cheaper than the clock calls. I hope this isn't too complicated. <laughs> but it was a subtle way, not terrible, but a subtle way of cheating AT&T. <laughs> right? This big monopoly back then. And, uh, you know, and I was just sort of green kid, you know, just sort of trying to be spiritual and just you know, taking advantage of any place I could sort of be. and But it never felt right, this whole thing. And I was sort of the new kid on the block, you know, and, and I, these, uh, the people doing it were my respected teachers, and I really appreciated them, and in many ways they were wise. But this just felt wrong. You know, I had sort of this sort of moral code. Like, you don't lie in a way you were lying by calling the operator say, I would like to make a clock call to somebody and that somebody doesn't exist, you know, that didn't feel right. 
you know. And, and you know, th- there was like, they thought I was a little crazy that I wouldn't do it. And eventually they changed, you know. And it's not like I'm proud of that or anything. It's just, it's just an in- interesting time of seeing that force of conscience arise in the mind and we just like, do I make some waves in this little way, in this situation? Right? It, was un- it was really uncomfortable to make some waves, to say, you know, I didn't, because of course the, the reaction is you're just a goody two-shoes, you know? What's wrong with you? You know, every, we all do this. Everybody does this, you know, or something like that. And it's the same thing with sort of how we people sometimes do their taxes or how, you know, all the little ways where we feel totally okay cutting corners. Oh, it's a big corporation. It's okay to take advantage, you know. The U.S. government is not just. It's okay to take advantage. But the question is, what does it actually feel like in the heart? Right? It's not something to fig- figure out intellectually. It's something to cultivate sensitivity and to be curious, like, well, what does the heart say? What's the flavor of having acted that way? Because what, what ignorance does is say, don't look, you're good here. You don't need to look here. And what wisdom says is, I can't figure this out intellectually. It's Morality is not an intellectual thing. Harming is a, morality <coughs> is a felt thing. It's like, so this, in this way, Buddhism, the way the Buddha taught, morality is not relative. Like a lot of times people think Buddhism is this sort of relative thing, you know. But harming is not a relative thing. Like harming is unskillful. Harming is unskillful. Causing harm is unskillful. And the reason it is, it, doesn't, it isn't unskillful because there's some guy with a beard up there who says that it's an unskillful thing. It's unskillful because when our heart is sensitive and we cause harm, we feel something. Like it doesn't feel good. That's what makes something immoral is its impact on our own heart. But it requires one being sensitive. That's how we know that, no, no, that was not a good thing to say or do or whatever, or even think. That wasn't even a good thing to think because of the impression that's left. We feel it. So let's play with this in the next couple of weeks. The last few weeks of the course, week seven and eight, we'll, we'll look at rebirth and some of the other aspects <clears throat> free will, in terms of karma. But for these next, tonight and then next week, week six, uh, we'll really look at these moral precepts and about the root of morality being here in our heart, the requirement of sensitivity, and then really feeling in. It's like really interesting when we... uh, like I've been making myself watch uh, in the news, whenever there's a report on racial injustice, you know, like in the criminal justice system, or recently there was the, just in the news of a um, African American 
a person was um, coming into, I think, an apartment building, and uh, a white woman was giving this person a hard time. Maybe some of you saw that in the news and followed him around and was basically harassing him. And uh, I think he recorded it. But I, you know, it's like, it's uncomfortable for me to keep, I just make myself, I, I always catch myself like, okay, I get it. I don't need to watch it. I say, no, no, you have to watch it, right? Because there's an uncomfortable feeling about the society that I live in, that I'm part of, right? And I want to feel that because it, 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 that sensitivity changes, my, it changes who I am as a moral creature, it makes me a more sensitive moral creature as I move through the life, to you know, and interact. And I'm a different person when I expose myself to these things, as opposed to thinking like I don't. I know there's injustice. I know there are ignorant people, or something like that. But to really let it in, not as a way of punishing myself, but because I appreciate being more exposed, more sensitive, right? And it, because then I'm making fewer mistakes. And when I make mistakes, I sense them. You know, I sense all the fear and aversion. I feel the complication of being a white person. You know, I feel my racial identity. One of the real expressions of whiteness is to be unconscious about race. And a lot of us think, well, that's what we're supposed to be, is unconscious of race. But the way to really uh, move in the direction of racial justice is first, as white people, to be really racially conscious, which is a lot of work, and mostly unpleasant work. Right? And I'm, it's, you know, I'm starting to take this on in a more conscious, regular way, and I find it liberating. But this work, like that uh, passage I read, it's the hard way. This is like where that maxim is really true. The hard way is the uh, the easy way is the hard way, right? This work is really difficult. Becoming a moral being is really difficult but it's more suffering to avoid doing the work. It seems like it's easier to be not sensitive because it seems like when we're not conscious of suffering, we're not suffering. But as we get a little bit more sensitive, we realize there's only one way, and that's the way of sensitivity. Right? Because sensitivity... It's like being awake demands wisdom. When we're not awake, we can go through life ignorant. And as long as we're ignorant, we're causing suffering and we're suffering, whether we know it or not. And the way out of it is to be sensitive, which means we're going to feel what it's like to be ignorant. And it's not pleasant. But... Feeling what it's like to be ignorant allows for the heart, the mind, to relate in different ways to the present moment. That's the way out. So I'll leave it here. We don't have much time, but time for one or two comments. And then we'll have small group next week. And so when I'll, I'll send out this sutta, um, middle link discourse number nine, 
the wholesome and the unwholesome, and uh, many other readings around this topic. So then you can check them out and do your own reflection, maybe after a set. Just go through the list so you're prompting yourself if any you recognize any of these ways, any of these places in your life where you get that, ooh, I should probably cultivate sensitivity in this place. I notice the mic doesn't have any batteries right now. So maybe if somebody wants to just speak loudly and share some comments or a question. Yeah, please. Mm-hmm. But real loud. Um, I felt maybe you guys are familiar with this book, but I just started uh, reading it. It's called The Book of Joy, and it's the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu having conversations on one of their 80th birthdays about joy. And, um, of course, one's a Buddhist and one's a Christian, so it gives you a, a really good feel for that. Um, but in the back, they have, I think, eight practices. And in the first chapter, they talk about the difference between joy and happiness. You know, that there is difference. So I found it really good. Um, uh, and and like, um, if you want to look into it, I think it's worth it. Yeah, it is a good book. I have it myself. And... Uh, but it's a nice place to end because there's two ways to deal with morality. One, and we need to do both. One is to develop this moral sensitivity and to really get curious about the ouches and the places you don't want to look and get sensitive there. But the other way is just to go with the qualities of mind that we have a lot of confidence or wholesome. Because when we're cultivating love, for example, or kindness, and feeling the joy and the goodness of that, it's suppressing a lot of the unwholesome tendencies. We still have to do the other work, but it gives us a lot of, in the meantime, it gives us a lot of immunity from acting out the unwholesome qualities. And that immunity, that joy, then gives us sort of the stability we need to look in an honest way at these places where you know, where we need to look. Thanks for sharing with us. Let's just let go of the words for a few moments. Take just a couple breaths together before we end. Thanks, everyone. Nice to be here tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.